This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we have a special, special treat for you. I'm so excited to dive into. We're in lesson two of our current series, which is on the 2018 International Conference on Creationism. This happens to be the uh, eighth one that they've had. I think they began in the very late 80s um, with the first one, perhaps uh, early 90s, might have been 1990, um, in any sense. So they're on the eighth one right now. They have them every four years or so. And so uh, we are excited to be bringing you highlights from the papers uh, that were submitted this year um, in this past July. Now, of course, there, there have been numerous um papers. Uh, There were numerous papers submitted. We do not possibly have the space to go through each one. So I'm just taking uh, certain selections from the ones um, that I found to be most interesting and going through them. Uh, So last week we began dealing with Faulkner's take on the current state of creation astronomy. And he did the first one of these in 1998. And so this is actually um, only the second one um, that he has done. So this kind of up Dates his last one, and of course he discussed many of the advances in creationist research that we've seen. But that was last week, and this week um, we are discussing Wayne Spencer's suggestion about um, planet migration. However, that is not the original purpose why I brought Wayne on, and uh, which you will hear in just a moment. So we do spend uh, the latter portion of this interview talking about his paper on planet um, migration, and so you'll want to stick around for that. But the bulk of the discussion was actually spent on something else. And so uh, I'm just going to turn it on over to him. Uh, you will get plenty of context there. Of course, you've probably already seen in the title, we're going to be talking mainly about impact craters. So um, this is a fruitful discussion. Wayne is probably the most prolific 
creationist writer on the issue of earth impacts. And so we're going to talk just a little bit about that and uh, try to gain some context for um, for this discussion and how we can talk about craters in a young earth time scale. Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with creation researcher Wayne Spencer. All right. Well, we are pleased to have Wayne Spencer with us. Wayne has uh, been a Christian since 1979. He's a prolific writer, speaker, and researcher uh, in areas of the solar system, astronomy, earth impacts, intelligent design, creationist geology, uh, and many other issues as well. Uh, Wayne graduated from Wichita State University in July of 1994 with a master's degree in physics and has presented papers at the third fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth international conference on creationism in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's also written for Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, and contributed to the Bible Science News, the Creation Research Society Quarterly, Creation Magazine, and the Journal of Creation with papers on extrasolar planets and other issues in planetary Science. He is the founder of uh, the creationanswers.com and publishes a quarterly newsletter there by the same name, Creation Answers. He also co hosts a podcast with a friend and colleague in apologetics work uh, named Dam Ray called Good Heavens, which can be found on SoundCloud and on Patreon. So, needless to say, uh, Wayne has been involved in the creation scene for quite some time. Thank you uh, so much for joining us, Wayne. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, one little correction. The, my website is creationanswers.net. Oh, it is. Okay. It's not .com. Well, let's go ahead and fix that right away here in my notes, so I'll make sure everybody... But thanks a lot for letting yeah. me uh, come on uh, on the, your program. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. Anytime we can uh, bring on somebody who is an expert in these subjects, I'm just thrilled because uh, I regularly communicate to those who listen here that I um, am certainly not an expert. I'm not a scientist, uh, but uh, I do love to communicate this message of creation. And um, I found that uh, while the Lord may not have given me the most scientific a mind, he did give me a mind to be able to understand some of it and communicate it to others. So uh, I'm just thankful to be able to get some of the great work out that guys like you and others are doing. Um, I, I was yeah. I was really intrigued. Uh, you gave a little bit of uh, a brief uh, uh, testimony on your website bio, and I was just really, really intrigued by that. Would you mind sharing just a little bit of, uh, about your testimony with us about how you became a Christian? Sure. Um, I grew up in a home where my dad was an atheist and my mom was a Christian. So I was kind of pulled in both directions. And I was, uh, I would have called myself an agnostic for a while. Uh, I remember when I had a conversation with my mom and I told my mom, this was, I, was, I was a teenager in high school, I think. And I told my mom, I am not a Christian. And she cried immediately, mm. and I was, I was struck at the time. I thought, why does it matter? Why was she so upset? Well, I know why it matters now. Our whole eternal destiny matters, and we, we all need to get right with God through faith in, in Christ. And uh, the, the real answers are in the Bible, and um, 
So that's, uh, I came around to believing in the Bible and Christ eventually uh, when I was 20. And it, it was uh, while I was in college. And that began a long process of me kind of getting what I would say is God straightening out my life. And mm. Uh, God was doing life repair on me for a long time. <laughs> Boy, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Some of the stories, uh, and that's another one, like, man, growing up in a home with, with an atheist and a Christian for, for parents. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I can really imagine what that was like. Um, uh, my parents divorced when I was only two years old, but had they stayed together, that, that would have been the case for me. Uh, my dad certainly was was no Christian, um, and my mom is, uh, and certainly I believe was back in that time. So, um, yeah, I can't I can't imagine that. But of course, we're thankful uh, that uh, God can can reach us where we are. I love old hymns, and I love the one that says that I'm so glad God still saves old sinners. <laughs> and uh, at the yeah. bo- at the at the end of the day, um, hey, that's what we are, and so thankful to God that He would do that. Well, let's uh, let's dive right in. Um, just to give everybody a little bit of context here uh, in a couple things. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to bring Wayne on the show uh, is because in this area of uh, astronomy and uh, and and astrophysics and things of that nature, uh, certainly I am weak in my understanding of, probably more than in any other area. Uh, and it's not to say that I, I couldn't learn more about it because I actively read more about it and I'm learning more about it. I just find that for some reason it's a subject that some of the concepts seem a little bit more difficult to me. And one of the things that we wanted to address uh, in this particular episode was the subject of cratering. Um, that is earth impacts, impacts from meteors or other kinds of things from the solar system that uh, seem to have impacted uh, our planet. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll even talk about other planets in the solar system as well, but certainly with the context of Earth. And and there are many... folks who study this within creation research, but um, I would argue that none have written more extensively on it, probably, especially in modern times, than uh, Mr. Spencer, who we are privileged to have with us today. Uh, And so Wayne, of course, as you heard from that biography, he's been doing creation research work for quite a while. So I thought, well, there's nobody better to bring on for this subject. So I have a, uh, I would certainly call him, he's a a brother in Christ and and he's a friend of mine, I would say as well. We've talked quite a bit. Um, I'd say we're maybe not good friends, but uh, a little more than acquaintances. And we've talked on numerous occasions. He has different convictions about the nature of Genesis than, than Wayne and I do. Uh, certainly we see things a little differently. And, uh, while I'm trying to, to, to hopefully get him to see some of the advantages that the young earth reading of scripture has over, uh, his current reading of scripture, I believe, um, we're not there yet. And one of the issues that he addressed with me was the issue of cratering. Uh, and I did not know how to answer his question, and I thought it was a good one. Uh, so that is, again, one of the main reasons why we decided to bring Wayne on. So, Wayne, if it's okay with you, um, what I'm going to go ahead and do is ask this question to you uh, exactly uh, with maybe one or two words changed for context, exactly how he asked it to me. Um, okay. 
and kind of get your thoughts on it. And maybe it could be that there's a problem with the question. I find that's always, well, not always, but a lot of times that's the case. It's You don't have to look any any further than the assumptions of the question itself to find out what's wrong. And maybe that's, maybe that's true. But I'm going to go ahead and ask this. So here's what he says. We see impacts littering the Earth's crust, and many of them would have led to cataclysmic global climate change, bringing about little ice ages from tens to hundreds of thousands years long. So if a meteor three miles in size struck the earth today, we know that it would be worse than a nuclear holocaust and would darken the sky for thousands of years and the fallout would last for thousands to tens of thousands more. And yet we have dozens of meteor strikes that size on the earth. And yet, if the earth is less than 10,000 years old, we would expect for most of all of our human history, um, we would be experiencing the effects of the meteor onslaught. So that is what, what he said. How would you begin to respond to something like that? Okay, well, um, I started by, you know, I've done research on the solar system, uh, and I came to the question of how do you deal with impacts on earth? Um, and I was thinking of the earth as just another planet kind of uh, for a while. Uh, and then I came to the conclusion that really you're, you have to think of earth as a special planet, mm -hmm. but uh, so it starts with understanding about the physics of impacts. And I spent time on that and that gets at a lot of his question uh, so I did a paper in the 1998 ICC that was just about the effects of impacts. And what happens in an impact is different from what a lot of people think. And it's pretty well understood how this works because scientists have studied what happens in, in volcanoes versus uh, nuclear explosions. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's true that nuclear explosions are kind of similar to impacts in terms of the amount of energy involved, mm -hmm. uh, except that an impact doesn't spread radiation, right? but it, it's, it spreads a lot of dust. So it vaporizes material, puts it all up in the atmosphere, and it spreads out and, and comes down as dust. But the dust that is distributed from an impact actually doesn't stay in the, in the atmosphere that long. It, it can't it can't stay in the in the atmosphere more than about six months. Hmm. And the more dust that gets ejected into the atmosphere, the more the dust coagulates and it falls faster. So it could certainly block light for a while and it could drop the temperature a little bit if it were global, but it wouldn't last thousands of years. Not not by any stretch. So the, the, the key que question really is how many impacts and how big were they? How many big ones? Um, so I did two papers in the International Conference for Creationism in 1998 about impacts. One was about what is the evidence geologically that impacts happened during Noah's flood? And the other was about the effects. And the effects, mostly I looked at atmospheric effects and the likelihood of the ark being struck by an impact. Uh, hmm. So 
it's if there's if there's not too many impacts that are large, it's very possible that art could survive. But if you have um, too many large impacts, then it becomes impractical. You know, right? So I, I when I've proposed the evidence, put forward the evidence for impacts during the flood, I was leaving open the question of how many impacts really, because I wanted to delve into that more because I didn't trust the numbers that I read from the scientific community. Right. So I wanted to dig into that further. So eventually I got around to looking at that. And uh, so if you, if you treat the earth as just another planet, then the best indication of how many impacts would be to look at the moon. It seems, you know, I get the moon is close by, right? Yeah, and yeah. So the moon is a big moon, uh, as, as moons go. It's a relatively large one. Uh, <clears throat> so you can, you can take the number of impact craters on the moon and scale the number to the Earth. Um, you, you, what you do is you consider the fact that Earth has a bigger surface area and it has a stronger gravity, and you can make an estimate based on the surface area and gravity uh, how many impacts that would be on, on the Earth. Uh, <clears throat> and so Mike Ord, you might know about Michael Ord. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ord and I did a paper together on the uh, an impact crater in the Chesapeake Bay in, uh, right off the coast of Virginia. And then uh, he did an estimate of, uh, came up with 36,000 uh, for the number of impacts that would have happened on the Earth. And I tried to update that number based on a newer data, which came from uh, a mission to the moon. It's called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And I came up with an even bigger number of 58,000. Oh, wow. Now, that's if you – what you have to do to do that is you leave out all the small craters. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is when you have a really big impact – it can have secondary impacts. Oh, yeah. In other words, the ejecta that comes off the big impact, they may be large enough to cause another small crater. Right. And are you that, talking about on the moon or on the earth at, at this? Well, either both. way, I guess. Yeah. Either, either really. Right. This has been studied quite a bit on the moon and in Chesapeake Bay. There's a, there's a big crater under the, buried under the bottom of the bay. It's like four or 500 feet. Hmm. Uh, or or is it meters? I forget. Under the bottom of the bay, and uh, off of, uh, maybe half a mile or a little ways a distance away, there's a small crater that's a secondary caused by the first one. Um, so you have to leave out the little ones because they could be from secondaries and not the main impact. And then you you scale the numbers and you. But I think that becomes un unlikely because uh, Earth would just would get too many large ones. If I the fifty eight thousand yeah. number that I came up with, that would be from about uh, craters would be from about thirty kilometer diameter up to three hundred or something, right? Uh, or three or four hundred kilometer diameter. That's those are all big, right? Now. Okay, everybody knows, for example, about the, the meteor crater in Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, out in the desert, you have a very well-preserved crater. 
<clears throat> it's dry in Arizona. There's nothing to erode it away. Right. And, you know, it pretty much stays there. Well, so that's a little crater. That's not a big one. Wow. It looks big if you're standing there by it, but it's a little one. It's just about a mile diameter. <clears throat> so that's not big enough to have global effects. Right. Uh, it would have significant effects for some distance, okay, but it's it wouldn't really be global. You'd have to have a pretty large crater to really have global effects uh, to, like, darken the uh, skies uh, all over the world. It would take a big one. There, yeah. there aren't many... There aren't many craters that have happened around the Earth that would be big enough to have a lot of global effects, but there are some. Interesting. Yeah, uh, in Tyler's question here, he actually says, um, he, he references meters that are three miles wide. He says, you know, if one like that struck the Earth today, um, it you know, would be worse than a nuclear holocaust and would darken the sky for, for thousands of years. Um, you know, I mean, is he is he right about that? Is he getting good information there, bad information there? Did he did he say three meters or three kilometers? He said three miles. Three miles? I think that's that may be what they say for this uh Chica Lube impact that they try to say that uh right. killed the dinosaurs. Yeah. Now yeah. that that was a, a pretty sizable crater, probably a little over 100, uh, 100 kilometers in diameter. Right. Uh, they used to say it was bigger, and then they ended up having to revise the number down. Um, so Chesapeake, the Chesapeake Bay crater is um, a little over 50 miles in diameter. That's a big one. Yeah. And then there's uh, the biggest is, is called Vredfort which is in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And, but that crater is like, uh, it's not all there anymore. See, a lot of times uh, the biggest craters are the oldest ones. Right. In the oldest rock. And they tend to be modified a lot. Like they may be partly melted. They may have eroded away. Uh, there's some big ones in Canada, a couple of, and then Australia, there's a, a large one. Uh, so some of these are, would be around 200, maybe 300 at the outside, uh, kilometers in diameter, if, if, the whole, if the crater were all there. Right. Usually it's uh, partly eroded away or something. Right. And, and I'm guessing that, you know, I mean, the size of the actual crater is, is I mean, larger than the size of the actual, you know, meteor that caused the impact or... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Much, much more so. Right. Right. Okay. So, I mean, so how do we make sense of this? Like, I mean, is, you know, I mean, are we just, uh, you know, just being a little facetious here? I mean, but, but are we just, are we lunatics, <laughs> you know, for thinking that we can fit all of this within a, you know, within a, a 10,000 year time frame for earth? So, so you were talking about, you know, you kind of extrapolated some numbers for the earth from the moon. So where do we go from from there? Um, yeah. So so that fifty eight thousand number led me to change my view. Actually, yeah, I, I originally had the view that all the impacts, uh, probably in the whole solar system, took place during Noah's flood, and I did it that way. I looked at it that way because Noah's flood is God's judgment on the earth, and it seemed like the logical place to put it. Right. In in history, but. I think it is too many, at least if you, if you um, 
try to use the moon's impacts as a measure of how many uh, hit the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, that's when I started to consider Danny Faulkner's view. Right. And Danny proposed that um, there's actually two events where impacts occurred. And one was really just the solar system, everything outside earth. And that was at the, uh, the fourth day of creation during, during the creation week. Mm -hmm. The fourth day is when the Bible says God made the sun and the moon. And so I tend to assume that everything in the solar system uh, was made on that fourth day. Right. So even though the Bible doesn't tell us about the planets per se, but since the moon was put on, on that day, uh, it could be. And, you know, unlike some things in Genesis 1, on the fourth day, it doesn't s seem to describe how it was done much. You know, it, right. doesn't, yeah. it doesn't say, let there be a moon. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> right. say it that way, like it does in some other verses in Genesis 1. Right. So here's here's a question. You know, I, I could thought about this question. Uh, if the moon took, say, a microsecond to form, or it took 10 hours to form, would one of those be better than the other? Well, no, I don't think right. so. Yeah, I mean, one of those would fit Genesis 1. Right. And so we don't know exactly what that looked like. I would love to have been there to watch it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Absolutely. I wasn't. So, um, so Danny Faulkner's proposed that when the planets and the moon were formed, that uh, there could have been impacts as a part of that process. So God sort of rapidly pulls together objects and forms the moon and the other, the, the other planets. And it's a supernatural process. It's not a natural process from gravity. Right. It's all done in a day. Right. Yeah. But, now, if I remember, just to, on that point, if I remember from reading his paper on this, um, essentially he's saying that we could think about it kind of in the same way that, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit in just more in just a minute, but um, you could maybe think about it in the same way as, something like the nebular hypothesis, but it would have to be supernatural because of the time frame in which it was done. Am, am I, am I tracking right there? I think he said something to yes. that effect in the paper. Yeah. He kind of thinks of things in the creation week as sort of accelerated. In right. Time. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that, so that makes sense. So um, it's not, you know, so by that, by that token, we're not even saying that, 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 you know, the natural process that they have, that they have described for this, we're not necessarily saying that, that that's completely wrong, but, w but we're definitely saying that it would have had to happen in a lot quicker time. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and the impacts during the creation week would not have affected earth. Right. Earth was protected uh, during that time. I mean, obviously you don't want to blow up the garden of Eden, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You can't yeah. blow up the garden of Eden before Adam and Eve get to see it. Right. And, and that's, you know, and that's a really, um, you know, that's an interesting point because we should slow down right there because uh, on the one hand, we don't want to be accused of special pleading, right? I mean, we don't want to say, well, we're going to make this ad hoc exception for Earth. Um, but if it was special pleading, it seems to me that 
that's only the case if there's not a good reason to do so. The question is, is there a good reason to think that maybe Earth was um, preserved? And you just mentioned one. You know, I mean, the, the certainly the, the Garden of Eden... Um, God certainly. I mean, the uh, even those uh, astronomers who would profess to be Christians, um, who have more of an old Earth persuasion, uh, have written books arguing that Earth is a special place and a special a special planet. And I don't think any Christian who, you know, understands uh, the reading of the Bible. Of course, Earth is the only planet even mentioned. So, I, in other words, I think we do have warrant there to say that that okay, maybe you know, okay, maybe Earth was supernaturally protected, uh, but I think we'd have a good reason, a good reason why. And now let me ask you another question along those lines. Um, something that I kind of discovered in my reading that um, it, it might have been on one of your papers. Um, I read that, uh, so even though the this modeling, or I guess I should say uh, this extrapolation was done looking at the cratering on the moon and then looking back at the Earth and saying, well, by these numbers, we're probably looking at, you know, somewhere like, you know, 58,000 impacts like you came up with. Um, I believe I read in, in one of these papers uh, that we only know of like 184 or something like that. Did Yes, I, that's a number that I published in okay. a paper uh, in the Journal of Creation. Okay. Um, Does that have any significance there? In, in other words, are we justified in saying that maybe there was only 184 and so we could work realistically with that number? Or is that not where you were going with that? No, that's uh, that brings up the other half of this. You see, okay. okay, I was talking about impacts during the creation week, mm -hmm. but uh, the impacts we see on the Earth would have happened at the time of Noah's flood. And that was a, a lesser event compared to what happened on the fourth day of creation. Gotcha. So that's, that's the, the other part of Danny Faulkner's idea is that you have lots and lots of impacts in the solar system on the fourth day of creation in the beginning. And then you have something else that happens that's more uh, targeted toward the earth. Uh, uh, at the time of Noah's flood. And so that's why Earth would have so many fewer impacts than other things in the solar system, other places. Gotcha. Okay. So really then, I mean, the the data that we, and this is not, I mean, again, this is nothing that we've made up here or contrived. I mean, it's demonstrably true that we are aware or that we can see less significantly less cratering on the earth than most of these other bodies in in the solar system and so the question is well what explains that um and so to me i mean again maybe i have a bit of an advantage here because i'm a person who is not so intimate with the science but just looking at it face value from more of a lay perspective it seems to me well if earth has far fewer craters than everywhere else in the rest of the solar system then to me that suggests that we're warranted to say that Earth was somehow, you know, protected or just not a part of, you know, because we know that Earth was formed in the beginning, right? I mean, different people read those first couple verses of Genesis a little differently, but I think certainly you and I would, would be of the persuasion that, uh, you know, the Earth was created before, you know, obviously the moon and the sun and the other planets. And so it's yeah. obvious to me that there's a different process 
there, a process that took place to create the other bodies in the solar system. And so what Danny Faulkner has argued, and which I believe you have kind of um, uh, began to affirm yourself, is that this special process is when all of that cratering took place and, and the Earth was protected from it, and therefore we have fewer craters. Um, but the craters we do see on Earth would be a resultant of God's judgment during the flood. Uh, so am I tracking correctly here? Did I miss yeah. anything important? Right. Yeah. I, I'm trying to follow the framework of Scripture. Yeah. Now, some people would respond to this by saying, well, the Earth could be young, but the, the uh, things in the solar system and outer space are old. You know, there's some people that take that view. Right. Uh, and because there is pretty good evidence for a young Earth, actually. It's sure. pretty good evidence we put together from creationist research. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot more to go on for the Earth. You know, we, we can dig up the rocks. And we right. can look, at the, look at a lot of data for the Earth. When you go outside the Earth, we have less to go on in some respects. Uh, we have radiometric uh, dates of, of moon rocks and other things. But um, I think there's evidence for a young solar system, too. Right. So, we're, But we're trying to, I'm trying to follow the framework of Scripture and still deal with the science. Right. And, and so some would say, I, you know, I, it's, not, it's not appropriate to bring in the supernatural, but I'm trying to bring in supernatural really just during the creation week because everything was happening very rapidly during that time. That's how God created. Right. Yeah, well, and, and by all accounts, I mean, I mean, let's face it, currently, and I don't, I mean, I don't think this is anything that any fair-minded person would have to you know would disagree with secular or not but there is no natural explanation right now for the beginning of the universe uh if we had it uh then this argument you know we wouldn't have you know uh the you know successful arguments um for the creation of the universe even the big bang theory i mean there, there's just no good answer for this at a natural level to, so to say that we can't appeal to the supernatural right here. Well, I mean, that would just be a, that would be a philosophy question. We're leaving science at that, at that point, you know, and and just kind of bringing in these philosophical assumptions. So certainly I think we're okay to, uh, uh, to bring in the supernatural on, on this point. And just, I don't want to take your time here, but one of the, you know, one of the things that, uh, really bugs me uh, just a, a personal pet peeve when having some of these conversations is folks say to me well we've got all this evidence for an old earth and we've got you know what where you know how how do you young guys you know young earth guys deal with all of this evidence for an old earth and and to me they're just completely missing the question the, the question is what best explains the fact that we're even here. What explains the fact that we have a universe? Well, based on the available data, I, I think theistic, you know, philosophers and scientists, and uh, 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 certainly those who have experienced the reality of Jesus Christ, I think we've all come together on a pretty reasonable conclusion that this thing was created by God. Well, if it was created by God, the question then is, what did God say about? the beginning of things. And so this is where guys like you and I come in trying to say, look, scripture says it this way. The, the worldview of the Bible is the only worldview that makes sense of all of the data. So we need to do it how the Bible says it. Um, so I, I think that's fair. An interesting thing that I think I heard kind of in the discussion that you just gave us about that is 
by so let me ask you this when you say you extrapolated those numbers about the the amount of impacts that there were on earth uh in relation to what there were on the moon um would secular scientists tend to agree with that in other words secular scientists would want to would want to say that there have indeed been thousands and thousands and thousands of impact on earth um they would want to say that even though we only see 184 correct well, let me clarify that. If you hear numbers like uh, hundreds of thousands or something, mm-hmm. what they're doing is extrapolating based on solar system origin theories. It's not based on data about right. the Earth. Okay. Now, uh, what I did was scaling numbers from real craters on the moon to the earth. And that is a reasonable thing. And I don't think secular scientists would really have an issue with that, but I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, the earth formed by impacts. Right. I'm saying God created the earth by a process that, you know, the best description we have is in Genesis one. Right. And, uh, uh, but, but in the secular view, earth actually formed because of impacts. Right, right. So, so then that obviously entails more than 184. So what I'm what I'm trying to get to here, and I was just trying to do a little bit of a Socratic questioning here to kind of get down to it. But um, lest we be accused of contriving an ad hoc explanation here, we're actually the ones who have a good explanation for the for the little amount of cratering that we see. Correct. I mean, in other words, um, the Earth formed by cratering on secular views, but surely we would also have seen uh, evidence after the Earth's immediate formation of more than 184 craters. In other words, I would assume that throughout millions of years of geologic time, they would say that those craters have been eroded away and such like that. Am I correct on how they would look at that? Well, they have a different way of looking at it, but what they say is that the heavy cratering on Earth, it was very early on when earth was still kind of growing in mm-hmm. size and uh, that life did not evolve and, and stick as it were until the cratering was over. Gotcha. And so they, they, they take the end of the cratering as uh, the idea where, where they say there was an object about the size of Mars that hit the earth and it made, uh, ejecta come off the earth that formed into the moon. Right. You've heard of that idea. Yes, so I have. Yes. That that's what they basically take as the end of the impacting, uh, time. Interesting. Uh, and then, uh, so they believe that, um, earth has been impacted occasionally on a s- slower rate throughout history, but, they put that in the context of their plate tectonics and plate tectonics is supposedly keeps overturning the earth's surface over over many millions of years. And so through the action of um, the changes in the continents from plate tectonics, they think that uh, a lot of the impact craters have been destroyed through all of that. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, they just have a different, a whole different way of dealing with it. Uh, but I think it is, it's a good question that your friend raised. I mean, how do you deal with this from a young age view? And I think you have to, you have to face the fact that something happened very rapidly that 
it was not like normal circumstances. And I think that makes sense in the creation week. And then if you have some other event happening at the flood, uh, but it's not like tens of thousands of impacts. It's just, I think at the flood, it could have been a, a few hundred or a several hundred impacts. Right. And I think that's probably plausible from something going on with the asteroid belt. But I don't, I don't know exactly what would have caused that, but it could have been associated with the flood. Right. And, and so uh, before we move on then, um, so this cratering during the flood, um, I, I mean, there wouldn't be any, uh, I mean, we, we have eight humans uh, who are, uh, who supposedly survived this thing. And so if all of this cratering is happening during the flood, you touched on this earlier, but you know, are, are we just outside of uh, the realm of rationality to purport that that they could last through this flood with all of this cratering going on i mean do we have to you know i mean how how no i don't think so in fact uh i think the way to do deal with it is say it must have been that it began at the beginning of the flood mm -hmm. and the reason to say that is because in precambrian rock um like in canada and australia and a few other places that's where the really largest craters were. The largest ones were early on, and you don't see the large ones, very many large ones later on. So uh, when they so they talk about the Chicalub impact, yes, in Mexico and Yucatan that supposedly wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, which is a theory that doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> anyway, that impact. It was right at what they call the KT boundary, the Cretaceous Tertiary boundary in uh -huh. the rock, um, which would have been around 65 million years ago in their time scale. There was uh, one or two other impacts at about the same date, according to their time scale. Uh, those impacts would not have been big enough to really have that severe of effects. Gotcha. And this has been a criticism of the impact extinction of the dinosaurs uh, the other scientists secular scientists have, have challenged that there are some scientists who have argued that it was volcanoes that wiped out the dinosaurs um that's another I, debate yeah i, I thought i heard a theory about uh, an actual theory about their flatulence am i right about that <laughs> yeah there's been a lot of bizarre theories uh, <laughs> I heard one that the dinosaurs were too stupid to reproduce. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. It's a really strange one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can't help it. I still maintain that uh, the creationists have the corner on that. I, I still, maybe that's my bias talking, but I still think we've got the best explanation for the, uh, for the extinction of the dinosaurs. Uh, but, I think so. Yeah. But, uh, but that, yeah, that's, that's good. All right. So I do, um, I do want, so we don't think then that, uh, that we would have to worry about these particular impacts destroying this, the ark. And, and actually just as a matter of fact, I think there are some, some, I think this may come down to research on the individual craters. One of the gentlemen, uh, you know, I, I do not, I can't for the life of me remember his name. I'll probably remember it uh, as soon as we hang up here. Uh, but he works right now for the Institute uh, of Creation Research, um, uh, Institute for Creation Research. I think it's Jake, oh, Jake Hebert, that's his name. Um, 
Yeah. I think he has done some research on one or two of these impact sites and uh, maybe even shown that some of them aren't due, you know, potentially potentially not due to an impact at all, maybe due to some sort of uh, sinking event or something like that. So, um, and I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I just say that to say that, you know, if someone's going to claim that we have a particular spot that's going to cause problems for our view, then I think we need to examine that spot <laughs> and say, well, what explains this? Can we make sense? Well, of it? I, I think the timing of it is really important. So right. what I was starting to say is uh if you put most of the impacts early in the flood, that means that the earth would have been covered with water during a lot of that. And uh, the water uh, covering the earth uh, doesn't keep it, the impact from making craters necessarily, but it, it lessens some of the effects. Right. Uh, and it um, makes the crater a little smaller uh, and, uh, if it were early like that, then a lot of the craters get wiped out. But if you only have, like I'm saying, a few hundred or several hundred impacts, it's very plausible that they could have just missed the arc. Right. Uh, it, you can actually calculate an area. I did this in my paper. You calculate an area around the arc and then calculate, uh, say there was a certain number of big impacts and figure, I forget, what did I say? I think I said 100 miles radius around an impact. Let's say if you were within 100 miles, then you would have a real strong blast wave. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you calculate the area and what's the probability that the arc would have been actually hit. And so if, you, if an impact is too close and the blast wave is too strong, then that would be a problem. Right. I mean, Blast going through the air is what I'm talking about. Uh -huh. Well, so if you have just several hundred impacts, it's really easy for the arc to miss it. Right. Uh, yeah, and that, I mean, that makes sense to me. Did, did you say that's in one that's of your in 1998 paper called papers? Geophysical Effects of Impacts During the Genesis Flood. It was a 1998 ICC paper. Okay. And that's, uh, you can download that from my website. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly going to go want to uh, take a look at that because that was one of the things that uh, that, that I had raised kind of to him was, well, you know, th these things happen during the flood. So I, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but I'm sure that uh, that the effects of, you know, the, the earth being covered with water would have do something to dampen or to, to somehow lessen the effects of that. So, um well, that well, that's great. Uh, perhaps maybe one thing um, that I want to touch real quick on cratering before we briefly talk about your your most recent paper uh, at the Creation ICC. Um, Faulkner's day four suggestion. He addresses this in the paper, and I think maybe you might comment a little bit on this to your response. But just I want to uh, ease the minds, okay, of anyone who's who's listening and thinking, "Wait a minute, did you just hear those guys put all those meteors and all those cratering and all this? Did you just hear them put that in the middle of God's very good creation? Boy, do we have a problem." Uh, I know the answer to this question, but would you care to elaborate on uh, real quick on? Uh, how Faulkner deals with that? I mean, can we have cratering during a very good creation? Well, he says it didn't touch Earth. Right. So um, he thinks of it as part of the creation process. Really. Right. That it was a miraculous, rapid thing, and it only affected everything, things outside the Earth. 
God protected the earth. Right. That's a supernatural thing. Yeah. Uh, other other objects, other other planets in our solar system don't have life, so there's nothing to protect. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you sense. want, you I think you could think you could say that impacts are inherently destructive, but in a way for the uh, for the planets and moons in the solar system they they just help shape what those objects are uh, you yeah. could think of it as kind of a neutral thing as long as life is not affected by them yeah i think that's a good point and i mean if this is you know i mean we're uh, you know everybody says that we just kind of appeal to god on this and well how do we know how god put those things together well you know there may be something to the secular idea of of you know of accretion and and, and things like this you know i mean it's uh when we there's no let me just back up so w when we look at god using this as a potential mechanism for forming the planets yeah suddenly the problem disappears it's just a it's just the process of the formation of planets now had the earth been destroyed i guess as a as a consequence of it well then yeah i suppose maybe we could attach some morality to that but again we're only talking we're talking about the morality that that god has uh imbued on his creation. So I, I think folks might, at first glance, not think about that very carefully. And they might think that this would be something that, that uh, you know, uh, that causes problems. But I remember Faulkner pointing out, even in the paper, you know, I mean, look at the, you know, the Bible says that the Garden of Eden had rivers. Well, you know, rivers have uh, erosion. And erosion, you know, by all accounts, is a, is a destructive process, you know, um, looking at it that way. So is it really, you know, are we going to say now that the rivers in the Garden of Eden pose a problem? Did, you know, did they, in what sense is the creation perfect? It, it is, I think, the way that they kind of categorize. Right, you know, yeah. Well, think about the uh, well, the third day when it says the land was lifted lifted up or right. the land was formed. Yeah. Well, a lot of creationists think that when that land formed, what happened was it was uh uh, the continent uplifting out of the ocean. Right. The earth was sort of a global ocean and the continent or the land lifted up. That would have caused major erosion. Right. Is that destructive? Right. Uh, right. There was no life yet, but uh, so you could, you could do this about a lot of things and we aren't told everything about the creation week, obviously. Right. Uh, right. But the end result was a good creation the way God wanted it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, that's great. I th certainly think that answers uh, that answers the question. I mean, that's. Uh, it sounds like we can understand cratering within our time frame with no problem, and uh, arguably, maybe some of the features of it are are easier to deal with. Uh, well, you know, Steve, there's there's still room for other ideas. You know, Michael Ord is is trying to explore the idea of could impacts actually cause Noah's flood? Right. And uh, personally, I don't really see how impacts could actually drive everything in the, in the flood. I think that catastrophic plate tectonics is a better explanation of Noah's flood, the way Dr. John Baumgartner has put together. 
if yeah. you're familiar with that. Yeah, I am. I, I, I argue pretty pretty heavily for that understanding of things. I, I certainly think out of the options that have been proposed thus far, I think it's the best. I'm interested to see some of this work from Dr. Uh, um, is it Warwick that's working on that kind of the heat problem associated with that? Uh, we're actually going to talk about that as part of the podcast series I'm doing on the creation uh, on the uh-huh. ICC. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, generally speaking, I certainly think the guys uh, who formulated CPT uh, have, you know, have, have, have persuaded me anyway. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, briefly then, let's talk a little bit about your recent paper um, at the 8th International Conference on Creationism. Uh, so this paper uh, deals with uh, secular planet migration theories, and it's called The Proposed Origin of Our Solar System with Planet Migration. And um, this current series that we're in, uh, it's kind of ironic that we were able um, to get uh, Brother Spencer on here with us for this, because um, at the same time that this question of cratering came up, um, he had a paper in the recent ICC here that I wanted to talk about, and so I thought, who better to talk about it than him? So uh, what I'm going to do then is just read a little bit of the abstract, and then I've got a couple questions uh, to, uh, to to pose from it, and we'll go from there. Um So the abstract uh, says this, quote, Two new models to explain the origin and history of our solar system are reviewed from a creation perspective, the Grand Tack model and the Nice model. These two theories propose that the four outer planets formed closer to the sun as well as closer together than today. Then their orbits underwent periods of migration. Theories developed in the research on extrasolar planet systems are today being applied to our own solar system. The new migration models are finding much support from the planetary science community. These new models are summarized and evaluated biblically and scientifically. Rather than demonstrating how our solar system formed, the new migration models can be understood as supporting the intelligent design of our solar system. Close quote. Uh, well, that's certainly an intriguing um, uh, abstract. Um, so I don't know exactly where you want to want to go from here. I, I do have a couple questions. Um, maybe uh, I was wondering if you could just explain very briefly. <laughs> I don't know if you can do this briefly, but maybe briefly about the nebular hypothesis in general, and just uh, you talking your paper about type one and type two and type three planetary migration. Maybe just give us a little context as to what. Uh, what they're talking about here when they're talking about planetary migration. Yeah. Well, you can kind of uh, break this down as uh, there's the old part of the theory and the new part of new theories. So the old part of it has not changed, which it starts with a nebula in space, a very giant uh, cloud of gas. It's hot, right? Mm-hmm. And it, as it cools, it supposedly would contract and then it would contract into a uh, spinning disk, and the sun forms in the center of it. And uh, so after the sun forms, you have a spinning disk of gas and dust around it. That's time equals zero, basically, for our solar system. Right. That's, that's when planet formation would supposedly start. And it starts where you have the most gas, and that ends up being uh, basically where Jupiter is. So Jupiter is the biggest planet, so it forms first when there's more gas present. 
And uh, then there's two new theories. The Grand Tack model is about the inner solar system. And the Nice model is about the outer solar system. So in the Grand Tack, you have Jupiter forming, and it just pretty much sets in place for a while. And then it starts to migrate in. And it migrates because of the, the way the gas flows by it, basically. That's kind of a complicated thing. But right. it, it migrates in. And then Saturn grows slower at a slower rate. And it starts migrating in, but it starts later. And, but then Saturn migrates faster, and it catches up with Jupiter. So right. Jupiter migrates in until it gets to what, one and a half AU from the sun which is right about where Mars is right now. Mm -hmm. And then it stops. So when Saturn catches up with Jupiter, they sort of lock into this special timing relationship. And, and Saturn is big enough to stop Jupiter's inward migration. And then Saturn and Jupiter migrate out together. And they come they, until Jupiter gets about to where it is now. And that sets it up for the other model, the Nice model. So the Nice model is about the outer planets. Mm -hmm. So Saturn and Uranus and Neptune migrate outward. Uh, and, but they migrate with a different mechanism. For, for them, it's because of these planetesimals, the, the small rocky objects that are supposedly all over the outer solar system. Right. Uh, and, and the whole idea really uh, hinges on uh, several things, but like they're assuming that this uh, disk of gas and dust and rock was much more massive now in this, these new models than they used to think, uh, and they make it a lot more compact, and so it becomes unrealistic because it's not like real disks around real stars. Right. Real disks around real stars tend to be bigger and more spread out uh, than what they're modeling. And when they when they do their computer models, they actually assume that these rocky objects are at least one kilometer diameter at the start. And they do that because they can't explain how they could get that big. Right, right. Uh, they they really don't have an explanation. Mm -hmm for how a, a small uh, rocky object, let's say the size of a car, could get the size of a football stadium or, or something. Right. They have no explanation for that. So, so they, they have to kind of assume that... So that's how they start their computer simulation. They start it with, a big, with these sizable objects so that they will have enough gravity to do something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, you know, I mean, in other words, these these models sound good, and you know, I mean, I would assume they explain, you know, uh, at least some things, <laughs> or else, or else they wouldn't hold to them. Um, but it sounds like they're just kind of based on, you know, this. In other words, they're adjusting some of the values that that they need in order to make them work. Um, that yes, and there's a lot of special timing that it takes. Uh, this really? this migration of Jupiter and Saturn inward and then back out again, that's yeah. that's almost a miracle, really. Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> if, if Jupiter migrated too soon, then Saturn could never catch it, and 
Jupiter would destroy everything in the inner solar system. <laughs> if if, if Saturn didn't grow fast enough, it couldn't stop Jupiter's migration and Jupiter would crash into the sun. Huh. There's all, all sorts of ways that could go wrong. And in some of their simulations, it does go wrong. Yeah, I remember reading that. You actually pointed out that it doesn't always work in every, in every simulation. Yeah. So, so there's, there's lots of things to pick on about it. I mean, I've, it's, it's interesting. They, they're kind of excited with the successes of it. You know, they can, a lot of scientists would say these, these new theories, as wild as they sound to common people, I guess, uh, they might say it's the best they've ever done. It may be, indeed be the best they've ever done. Right. <laughs> but I don't think it's convincing. Yeah, right. All. But is that a good, you know, is that, is that a good thing or not? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, and this might be, uh, you know, understating the case then, but I mean, to say that these things are just purely theoretical, I mean, not based in any fact, is, I mean, certainly true. <laughs> I mean, um, well, at least you should, you know, my paper tries to deal with, okay, here's the limits of what they've done, here's the potential problems, and I'm just pointing out mostly problems that they've talked about themselves. Right. Yeah. And I, I did notice actually when I was reading it that, uh, I mean, you spent considerably more time in the paper actually explaining it and, and, and giving it its fair shake and, and pointing out, you know, the things that it explains. I mean, I think, you know, sir, I mean, I don't know, you know, statistically, but I mean, certainly to me, it seemed like three quarters of the paper at least was dedicated to just making sure that you were accurately explaining it. Um, I really tried to be accurate with that. And I spent yeah. a lot of time on this. Uh, I really, there's, this has been very significant. They've developed a lot of whole new ideas in their research on extrasolar planets, because those, those systems around other stars are different than ours. Right. And, uh, then they tried to start using the ideas they developed with extrasolar planets to deal with problems with their theories in our own solar system. Hmm. And of course, that means they always had problems with their theories, and now they're trying. They're now they're trying to correct it, right? Right. But right. Steve, you might be aware of this. You know, the software sometimes software companies uh, they don't. A software company may not talk about a bug that they have with the software until they have a fix for the bug. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. that's kind of like scientific theory sometimes, right. but they don't, they don't talk about a problem with the theory very much until they have a new theory to replace it. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, God forbid that we would point something like that out to, you know, we're just, we just hate science. Isn't that right? It's kind of the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey used to right. say. Yep, and that's the rest of the story. Um, well, and I'll I'll take that I'll take the analogy one step further because I mean I uh, obviously I, I work with software in my line of work, um, but probably more than working directly with software, I work a lot with security, and I get all these security alerts and different things. And it, sure enough, you will not find out about the problem that was in the software until after they've thoroughly examined it, studied it released the patches for it, all of this, in most cases, unless it's, unless it's something that they just, you know, they don't have a fix for and they don't, they don't think they will have a fix for it for a long time. And they, for ethical reasons, have to notify you. In most cases, you don't find out about the problems until they've already hashed out the solution. Um, 
Right. So, I, I know. I know there is another side to that. You know, they don't want to alarm people unnecessarily when right. most people run into it anyway. But I just wanted to. I'm I'm picking on software companies there a little bit there. Yeah. No, and that's okay. I mean, you're right. There is another side to that, but I think the analogy is instructive. You know, to yeah. just just you know, because we might not be when we're dealing with scientific models, we might not be dealing with the safety of people. But nevertheless, the principle kind of you know stands. It's, um, you know. If something doesn't work, you know, it, it's not always going to be every, everybody's um, first thing to go out of their way to, to show that that's the case. So, um, But thankfully, uh, you've done, you know, I thought you did a great job with the paper. And again, I, I can only understand it to some extent. That's why you're here. Uh, but I am thankful uh, uh, for that. And so what you say, and I just want to kind of touch on this. I mean, certainly you say, and you've pointed out here that there were some problems, uh, that there are some problems with it a lot of the values and things and the timing is just um it's almost miraculous anyway that that it even worked but you did say in your last sentence there in the abstract that even though we we as recent creationists we don't want to affirm that that these models work in terms of the origin of, of the solar system. You said they can be understood as supporting the intelligent design of our solar system. Is there any specific sense in which you meant that? Or Yeah, so what they do in these computer simulations, Steve, is they, they try all kinds of scenarios of what if the solar system were different? What if there were five planets in the outer solar system instead of four? What if... Jupiter were in a different place? What if Jupiter's orbit were a little bit more elliptical? They try all these kinds of things like this. And uh, it, what it shows uh, to me is that Jupiter, placed where it is, has a huge effect on er oh, just about everything in the solar system. Right. If you monkey with Jupiter's orbit, it has a way of influencing both the inner planets and the outer planets. Hmm because of where it's placed and the fact that, see, Jupiter has a mass that's more than double the mass of all the other planets put together. Oh, wow. And Jupiter by itself makes the sun wobble. Are you serious? It absolutely does. Wow. And uh, I mean, I heard somewhere, I think maybe the most common understanding of this is uh, that, that Jupiter is responsible for, you know, a, the fact that we don't see many meteor impacts and things like that is that it's kind of actually yeah, like a, so a magnet. Jupiter, a place where it is, comets tend to be steered off in another direction, so it, they don't come close to Earth. Or, and and there's lots of uh, uh, asteroids and, and small objects from the outer solar system that have probably been captured by uh, by Jupiter, and they end up. Uh, sort of sharing Jupiter's orbit. There, there's two places along Jupiter's orbit where asteroids have a tendency to just collect. Um, mm -hmm. and it, so Jupiter protects us from a lot of a lot of small objects. Yeah, and so with all of these things considered, you know, I, I suppose the point you're trying to get to is that it, it certainly, you know, with all of these different models that they do and all the different values that have to be adjusted and et cetera, uh, it certainly seems like this thing is designed to work quite nicely, uh, generally speaking. Yeah, I think Jupiter really has a, a, a way of kind of steadying the motion of the other planets. It really mm. does. 
because if you change Jupiter's orbit, it has a tendency to alter uh, even the inner planets' orbits get altered. And, and because Jupiter affects Saturn a lot, then Saturn affects Uranus a lot, and Uranus affects Neptune. And <laughs> you have this kind of chain of things because they they start to pull on each other. Right, right. Wow, that's that's incredible. So just that, again, uh, you know, and let's, uh, we'll close with this point, but, you know, let, let's just marvel with the fact that the data that we actually have, the, the things that we actually see, seem to continually over and over again support the hypothesis of design, right? Now, I mean, does, does, does the existence of Jupiter, you know, get us to, you know, Jesus is God? Well, no, there's, you know, we have to go to other domains for that. Right. But certainly what we see is that um, despite the fact that the, the, Secular science, uh, the, the, the scientism view, the view that science can just give us all the answers, um, they would just want to say that science has done away with any need for God. Uh, but the only, uh, it seems to me, again, looking at this from a bit of a lay perspective, is that the only, uh, the only things that would do away for the need for God seem to come from computer models that aren't actually based in in fact that have to use certain you know parameters that are unlikely given what we know about reality and so that's a convoluted way of saying that when we look at what we actually see it does in fact support the view that uh, in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth isn't that right Absolutely. I love it. I love it. All right, uh, brother. Well, we, hey, we certainly appreciate you coming on, and uh, I certainly learned a lot. So thank you for shedding uh, some light on this these issues and, and giving us some of your wisdom. Go ahead and take a few moments, however long, and uh, tell us a little bit about where we can find you, the kind of things that, uh, that you're into, and what's up next for Wayne Spencer. Well, um, my website, again, is creationanswers.net. Um, the podcast uh, that I do is with a friend of mine named, uh, named Dan Ray, and we're on Patreon. Um, Patreon.com, you can listen for free. You have to set up a login. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have some of the podcasts on my own website, too. Um, so we, in the podcast, it's called Good Heavens. You'll see something that will say, uh, a podcast about the universe by Wayne and Dan. And we try to make astronomy topics interesting and relevant and kind of enjoyable for people. Uh, some of our podcasts are 20 some minutes and some of them are an hour, but we, uh, we pick all kinds of topics. You know, we did one that I liked a lot. It was called uh, things too big for the big bang. <laughs> uh, about a, a really supersized galaxy clusters. And uh, then we, we did one on star formation. It was one of our most popular ones. So mm-hmm. uh, right. I'd check it out. And um, uh, you can put some comments in on our with our podcast and let us know you're out there. Great. 
Great. Well, that's 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 excellent. So, uh, in the meantime, while we await our our next paper or publication from Brother Spencer, uh, definitely check out that podcast uh, because I guarantee you uh, that you are going to learn significantly more about astronomy from listening uh, to that podcast than you will about listening to this one. But nevertheless, we're going to continue to try to bring guys like Wayne on and um, try to get the best information that we can for you. All right, Wayne. Yeah, well, hey, uh, yeah. Uh, they might also, if they're familiar with the websites of Answers in Genesis yeah. or uh, the creation.com, the Creation Ministries International, they can search for my name on those websites and they'll find some articles I've written. Yeah, great. Good good deal. And uh, certainly um, encourage you to check out those resources. And uh, another one I'll mention, uh, searchcreation.com, put together by the folks at Creation Today, kind of uh, is kind of a custom search engine that kind of calls uh, information from those various websites. And so I would, uh, I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I'd bet that you could go there uh, to search creation. I think it's either .com or .org. I can't remember. Put in Wayne Spencer's name and you'll find resources. Probably from each of those mentioned websites. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, all right. All right, brother. Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this. And uh, we certainly hope you have a, uh, a great evening. Thank you again. Thank you, Steve. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Well, there you have it uh, an interview with Wayne. Spencer, uh, independent creationist um, researcher. Wayne and I had a great time on this discussion. Uh, I really think we got to the bottom of these questions, um, and uh, and especially with this issue of cratering. I mean, the way that um, Wayne laid it out for us was remarkable. To me, the conclusion that we can draw from this is that we really do have a reasonable way of understanding these impacts uh, from the perspective of uh, a young earth time scale and a young age time scale, even for the universe. And um, what I'm going to do, Wayne mentioned in his interview, a couple of papers that he wrote in, um, uh, I think he said 1998. And, if I understood him correctly, one of these papers was specifically about the kind of effects that um, that the the objects that created um, these craters or that are responsible for these craters, uh, the kind of effects that these things would have had on the earth. And so um, if you uh, would like to dive more into understanding the kind of effects they have in order to to better understand how this fits within our um, our paradigm of creationism, then I'm going to encourage you to go check those out and I will have links to those available for you in the lesson notes. All right. So I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Creation Academy. Let's go ahead and uh, have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love and appreciate you. We thank you for the ability to study your word and to study your world. Thank you, Father, for creating an orderly universe. We realize, Father, that uh, things that we take for granted every day, like uh, logic and rationality and the uniformity of nature, uh, the ability to understand right from wrong, these are things, Father, that we take for granted because, uh, because they're so axiomatic to our experience, and yet many never uh, question 
why the world is the way that it is. And Father, I'm just thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in creation. You've revealed yourself in your word. You have revealed yourself in history. Father, you've revealed yourself through your son. And most of all, you revealed yourself personally to each of us. The Bible teaches that we can know you and that we can know that we have eternal life. And Father, how thankful we are for that. We love you and uh, praise you for the opportunity to communicate creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this is it for this week's show. Uh, feel free, please. In fact, we encourage you to, if, if this show helps you um, from week to week, please uh, go leave a star review or a comment review there in iTunes. And you can go um, just uh, let the world know the kind of help that you get from this podcast, what it could do for others. Um, it's not just uh, for me. It's not just so that you can pat me on the back. That's not what it's about. Um, iTunes and the way that they look at things is they categorize or they, I guess I should say that when you search for a podcast, one of the things they take into account is what your reviews look like. Um, and so right now we have no reviews, no star ratings or anything. And so uh, you can help other people find us by making that small contribution to our ministry, leaving just a, a quick review for us there in the iTunes, uh, or I should say the Apple Podcasts directory. Thank you so much for joining us this week here on the Creation Academy. We'll see you next week. Thank you and bye-bye.